My work on gender is about trying to rationalize what we see in the labor market without having to rely on discrimination and harassment. Without giving it too much thought, answer the following questions, true or false, as quickly as you can. One, females are better caregivers. Two, men earn more money. Three, only children are often spoiled. And four, religious people have more children. I'm your host, Carly Sheridan, and in today's episode of Women in Economics, we'll be exploring, you probably guessed it, implicit biases and tactical ways to address the inequality they cause. Implicit bias, also known as unconscious bias, refers to when stereotypes influence our actions or decisions in an unconscious way. If you answered true to any of my questions, it may be that you fundamentally believe those statements to be true, but it's more likely that you've been conditioned to believe them to be true. These implicit biases, which are often rooted in systemic oppression, creep up in everything from who we choose to date, where we want to live, where we send our children to school, who we hire, and who makes us feel safe. Implicit biases are incredibly challenging to address because they can be so ingrained in us that people are often unaware that they have them and simply do not have the capacity to distinguish it within themselves. Breaking down barriers is never an easy task. Breaking down invisible barriers is something else entirely. Our guest today, economist Marianne Beltran, specializes in labor economics, corporate governance, and development economics. Within the field of labor economics, she's been recognized for her work by being awarded two of the most prestigious awards one can receive, largely for her research around discrimination and gender gaps. One of Beltran's most well-known papers is one that was published more than 15 years ago. Are Emily and Greg more employable than Lakeisha and Jamal? Set out to examine and measure racial discrimination that occurs within the hiring process. The experiment was simple enough. Beltran and her co-researcher took resumes with equal work experience and credentials and randomly assigned either very white-sounding names like Emily Walsh or more black-sounding names like Lakeisha Washington. They found that applicants with the white names needed to send on average 10 resumes to get one callback, whereas the black names needed to send out an average of 15 resumes to get one callback. In the experiment, they also randomly allocated postal addresses of wealthier neighborhoods. For the white-sounding names, this further increased callback rates, but interestingly, for the black names, callback rates were not affected by this perception of living in a better neighborhood. The fact that this work, first conducted in 2003, remains as relevant today as it was then, speaks to both Beltran's ability to deduce systemic and structural problems at play, and to the complexity of solving them. To get us started, let's zoom out. What were you trying to achieve with your research around racial discrimination within the labor market? The work that we did was really simply about trying to document the bias. And a lot of the work that's been done since has been really about replicating the same study in other countries, other contexts, other minorities. I don't know how much more of that work we need, except for monitoring purposes, and whether we are seeing changes over time. The much harder question is, what do we do, you know, and how do we break this? If you look at the psychology literature, there are really two main approaches. One is to try to 
teach people about their biases, right? So you may not know that you're a racist, but teaching people that they have biases, you know, could be a very important first step. And there's a lot of training and a lot of companies that make a business of going and training HR managers and, and employees about these implicit biases and uh, making people aware of them. We have evidence from labs in psychology that suggests that such training may have short-term effect. It's much less clear whether it will have long-term effect. And there's another approach, which is to use what we call technological debiasing. So it's kind of really inspiring ourselves from lots of work that's been done in psychology and thinking about how we could re-engineer the hiring process to try to make sure that all of the steps where we'd expect biases, even implicit biases, to creep in, I view that approach to be much more exciting and potentially much more robust. Can you give me an example of what a very common implicit bias may look like in the hiring process and perhaps an adjustment that could be made to address it? What would not want a hiring manager to be able to say, I did not like this person, but would like the hiring manager to be forced to at least write a couple of sentences that explains why we didn't hire this person. That's creating a little additional cost in the hiring process, but that could make a huge difference. Right? Just telling yourself this person is no good versus writing it down, having to explain to somebody why this person was no good could make a really, really big difference. There are other techniques inspired by the way we did our work with resumes, which might be to just take names out of resumes, at least for the first step. There's been a bit of empirical research trying to assess how this works. This research is hard to read because it's done on very selected sample firms that are interested in implementing those practices. I think a variant on this, which is also an exciting one, a simple one, is that when you review resumes, let's focus on the issue of race, right? Instead of lining up the top three applicants, you may be forced to line up the top two applicants on the white pile and the top two applicants on the black pile. And then you have to make a comparison across the two piles. That would be a good way to make sure that minority applicants don't get lost because of biases. Does technology play a role here, either to help streamline this process or otherwise? Machine learning is offering, I think, a lot of potential tools that may make it such that a lot of these human biases get out of the process, or at least their influence is being reduced. You've also conducted research around gender equality in the workplace. What was your main thesis or approach with this work? My work on gender is about trying to rationalize what we see in the labor market without having to rely on discrimination and harassment. I've convince myself that we can explain a lot of what's happening to women without having to rely on discrimination. I have this research agenda that's about polarization and, you know, kind of culture and, you know, kind of how people communicate with one another and share or do not share cultural capital in the context of rising income inequality, the signs that we're getting more and more polarized. And I'm really eager to try to find more ways to think about first whether that's true and why it's happening and what can be done about it. In her paper, Breaking the Glass Ceiling, Beltran and her co-authors focused on a narrow set of firms in Norway. While several other countries have since implemented similar regulations, Norway was the first country in 2008 to introduce legally binding quotas which required that 40% of board members must be women for all publicly listed companies. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD, in 2020, women made up a mere 16% of board members for multinational companies. 
When viewed through this lens, it seems to be a very reasonable and rational approach to address and improve gender equality within firms. But sometimes a narrow approach can also lead to narrow results. How would you summarize your findings of this work? My reading of our result in this paper suggests that it would be a wrong policy to assume that you can solve all the glass ceiling problems in the business sector by imposing the kind of quotas that Norway imposed. There's evidence that once you force the boards of these companies to, to find women to serve on the board, they were able to find you know, qualified women. So that was, I think, a great thing. The more disappointing part of our analysis is that we don't find any evidence that these quotas had spillover effects beyond the mechanical effect they had on the woman that were brought on the board because of the quota. So this policy did not seem to have made a very big difference. Whenever I think about quotas, I also very much worry about the negative impacts of quotas. I worry about how they may reinforce some of the stereotypes that may be hurting women, like women are not qualified enough to serve on board, so we have to have quotas in place. I think there's quite a lot of disagreement among women about whether they care or not about these stereotypes and whether it matters to them. What are your personal feelings about these types of quotas? Is there a right or wrong way to implement them in your opinion? I think it is still worthwhile. Temporary quotas might be useful in breaking some of the dynamics that may hurt women. Permanent quotas, I'm much less sure. Economics as a field is still a very male-dominated one. It must be interesting for you to work on these types of topics while also working within a field that is struggling to address some of the same issues. What is your perception of the state of economics as it relates to inequality today, and how could it be improved? The group at the American Economic Association that tracks women in economics is documenting that there's been really no improvement in the share of women doing PhD in economics. The AEA completed a climate survey that, you know, was really about trying to understand the state of the profession for women, but also many other minorities. I think the results of this survey certainly show that it's not as easy to be a junior female faculty member than it is to be a male faculty member. I think there's no doubt that these data suggest that there is really a problem of discrimination or unfair treatment. I also believe that we have a pipeline problem. I think lots of young women that are doing their undergrad may just not want to do economics because sometimes they don't have a good understanding of what you know economics is. And so I think another thing we should think more about is how we can describe a profession better and describe the range of things that as economists we study, which is way broader than just you know interest rates and prices and equilibrium to make this profession more appealing. I think... For young women that are thinking about trying to define what they could do with economics, looking at the career of someone like Alan Kruger is got to be inspirational. It's understanding that, yes, you can use these statistical econometrics tools to you know, answer important questions, do policy evaluation, be able to communicate these answers to policymakers, and, and sometimes be influential enough, and if, if that's your taste, to join the policy circles and, and be in charge of you know, implementing these policies. When I think about the part of economics that really resonate with me, it is really truly that part. What are some of the potential effects we could see on the economy or on the field itself if a better gender ratio isn't achieved? There's no doubt that by limiting our profession to white men, we are leaving a lot of 
discoveries on the table. By limiting ourselves to a pool that is so narrow, we must be inside the possibility frontier in terms of what economics could be. There might be differences between genders as to what topics might be you know, more relevant. And so it's also possible that when our profession becomes more diverse, the kind of questions that we study becomes more diverse as well, which would be a great thing. Is there any industry that you feel has managed to successfully address this problem? There's a sense that the stems have made way more progress than we have in economics. Um, maybe they've made more progress in terms of the leaky pipes that, that we experience. I'm not saying that the stems have, have gone you know, to a great place, but from where they started, they've made way more progress than we have. My sense is that there's a lot for us to learn as to how they succeeded in reverting what was a pretty bad trend. These are very big and hard questions to answer. Where does this passion you had to explore the disparity between gender and race come from? I try to choose topics that I think are important to the moment and also try to choose topics where whatever I'm going to learn will have some policy implications. It's not always the case. It's not always successful. Um, But once we understand a problem better, we can think about solutions. I'm not driven by big theories. I'm driven by explaining basic facts. You know, inequality has always been an interest of mine. What drives me are questions that are of practical relevance. Looking at the topics that I've explored over the years, I think that's, that's always a driver. I think it's safe to say that one of the most powerful tools we have at our disposal when it comes to combating inequality is communication. Talking about our own experiences, listening to those of others, and checking in with our own internal biases. If you're curious about where you stand on this topic, Harvard University offers a free implicit association test as a part of Project Implicit, a nonprofit organization focused on implicit social cognition. Simply search for Project Implicit Harvard online and you'll find a test where you can explore your own biases about race, gender, sexual orientation, and other very important topics. Join us for our next episode where we'll explore the importance of smart regulation. Women in Economics is brought to you by UBS and the Center for Economic Policy Research, CEPR. It's hosted by me, Carly Sheridan, produced and sound engineered by Zoo Agency Berlin, with music provided by Artlist. Help us usher in this new era of economics by sharing the episode with a friend, relative, or colleague, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The featured persons and the Center for Economic Policy Research are not affiliated with UBS. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS. UBS does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented.